Episode 75, Academia and the New Dark Age, Part 3. Stupid paper number 2, Spanish researchers discover the bleeding obvious while failing to ask themselves some important questions. In last week's podcast episode, I introduced you to a paper titled Resistance to COVID-19 Vaccination and the Social Contract, Evidence from Italy, in which two highly educated US academics struggled to understand why a small proportion of Italians resisted the enormous economic and social pressure exerted by their government to try to make them accept an experimental COVID-19 transfection agent. I compared this paper to the six reasons why Steve Patterson believes we have ended up in a dark age and found that it checked every box. This week, I'm turning my attention to a study published online ahead of print in late April 2023 in the journal Vaccine X. What's with the weird title of this journal? Is this the X-Files of medical publishing? Sadly, the answer is not nearly that exciting. According to the journal's Aims and Scope section, quote, Vaccine X is the open access companion journal of Vaccine and has the same aims and scope. The journal offers authors who want to publish in a gold open access journal the opportunity to make their work immediately and permanently accessible. Vaccine X publishes high quality science across all disciplines relevant to the field of vaccinology, all original article submissions across basic and clinical research, vaccine manufacturing, history, public policy, behavioural science and ethics, social sciences, safety and many other related areas are welcomed, end quote. Ooh, a gold open access journal that publishes high quality science. Has that raised your expectations of this study? Before we dig into it though, let's take a few minutes to reflect on the role that the development of the scientific method played in ending the last dark age. As I wrote in my previous article, The Death of Science Part 1, the formulation of a testable hypothesis and the design of experiments to vigorously test this hypothesis against reality, in essence to try to prove the hypothesis wrong, is at the very heart of the scientific method. If there's no testable hypothesis, then, say the purists, it ain't science. As Allen and Herkstra wrote in their 1992 book, Toward a Unified Ecology, Quote, an ungenerous view would say that anything which puts science in its title is not science at all. Social science, political science, library science, domestic science, and so on. All these sciences deal with messy systems where controlled experiment is often impossible, end quote. And that was from an online article titled, Any field that had the word science in its name was guaranteed thereby not to be a science. And if there's no sincere attempt to prove the hypothesis wrong, then it ain't science. In his 1974 commencement address at Caltech, the late great physicist Richard Feynman compared much modern, supposedly, scientific output to a cargo cult. A quote from that Feynman address. In the South Seas, there is a cargo cult of people. During the war, they saw airplanes land with lots of good materials, and they want the same thing to happen now. So they've arranged to imitate things like runways, to put fires along the sides of the runways, to make a wooden hut for a man to sit in, with two wooden pieces on his head like headphones, and bars of bamboo sticking out like antennas. He's the controller. And they wait for the airplanes to land. They're doing everything right. The form is perfect. It looks exactly the way it looked before, but it doesn't work. No airplanes land. So I call these things cargo cult science because they follow all the apparent precepts and forms of scientific investigation, but they're missing something essential because the planes don't land, end quote. That missing element, Feynman went on to explain, is the attitude of the scientists themselves toward their work. 
quote, it's a kind of scientific integrity, a principle of scientific thought that corresponds to a kind of utter honesty, a kind of leaning over backwards, end quote. This is why Feynman was so dismissive of the field of studies known as the social sciences. Because of the success of science, there is a kind of a, I think a kind of pseudoscience that Social science is an example of a science which is not a science. They don't do scientific. They follow the forms. Uh, you gather data, you do so and so and so forth, but they don't get any laws. They don't, haven't found out anything. They haven't gone anywhere yet. Maybe someday they will, but it's not very well developed. But what happens is, at an even more mundane level, we get experts on everything that sound like they're sort of scientific experts. See, I have the advantage of having found out how hard it is to get to really know something, how careful you have to be about checking the experiments, how easy it is to make mistakes and fool yourself. I know what it means to know something, and therefore I, can't, I see how they get their information, and I can't believe that they know it. They haven't done the work necessary, haven't done the checks necessary, haven't done the care necessary. I have a great suspicion that they don't know that this stuff is don't know and they're intimidating people by I, I think so i i don't know the world very well but that's what i think Feynman's criticisms of the so-called social sciences have been echoed and amplified by some very establishment sources, and I've linked to articles on this subject in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Heck, even Robert J. Pitchell, himself a social scientist, wrote in the Washington Post that, quote, social scientists cannot be real scientists in the same sense as physical scientists, end quote, because human free will prevents social science from making any meaningful predictions. Furthermore, Pitchell stressed, quote, human beings also have values and goals that give meaning to their lives and influence their behavior. Social scientists are simply unable to cope with goals and values in any scientifically predictable way, nor can they use scientific method to determine which goals or values are better or worse. These are crucial elements in the social science universe, end quote. And that was from Pitchell's opinion piece in the Washington Post called Social Scientists Are Not Real Scientists. Writing in 1987, Pitchell urged the director of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, the NAS, to, quote, get out of the business of sponsoring and funding all social science research that has as its goal policy advice to governmental agencies and the public at large, end quote. Needless to say, his advice was not heeded, either by the NAS or any other agency. And that's why we have an unending torrent of social science papers, including the ones I discussed in last week's and this week's episode, appearing in journals that pride themselves on being bastions of real science. These papers emanate largely from government grants that fund social scientists to produce sciencey sounding articles that support the policy platforms that governments, or more to the point, the permanent bureaucracy that actually runs modern states, have already decided to implement. And with that very lengthy preamble, let's get to this week's stupid paper. The paper, titled Predictive Factors of Hesitancy to Vaccination Against SARS-CoV-2 Virus in Young Adults in Spain, results from the SCI-COVID study, was written by researchers seeking to understand why some young Spaniards were reluctant to get all jabbed up with their government-approved transfection agent. 
It was based on analysis of a questionnaire administered to 2,120 Spanish residents aged between 18 and 39 between the 15th and the 30th of June 2021, just after the Spanish government had approved the injection of people aged between 12 and 39 years. Note that there was no hypothesis stated. The survey was basically a fishing expedition in which all sorts of socioeconomic, psychological, cognitive and attitudinal factors were assessed to see if they had any bearing on participants' intention to take a COVID shot, which the authors were at pains to state was absolutely necessary, quote, to contain the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. More on that later. Out of 67 items in the questionnaire, 35 were found to be statistically associated with the intention to accept a transfection agent, although the effect sizes, that is the strength of the relationship between the items and vaccination intention, was small to medium. The researchers further sifted through these to identify three questions that, taken together, accurately identified 86% of young adults who were reluctant or hesitant to get jabbed, and these were the questions. Number one, is it necessary to administer the vaccine to the population? People who strongly disagreed were, unsurprisingly, the most likely to state that they did not intend to take it themselves. Number two, what degree of trust have scientists and health professionals deserved during the coronavirus crisis? Again, unsurprisingly, those with a low opinion of the trustworthiness of the experts were the most likely to signal that they did not intend to get jabbed themselves. And number three, do you think SARS-CoV-2 is a virus created for socioeconomic purposes? Those who strongly agreed with this, in the author's words, conspiracy belief, were the least likely to state an intention to take the experimental transfection agent. Before I dig deeper into this paper, let's pause for a moment to reflect on whether big gobs of taxpayers' money should have been spent on this exercise. And in the post accompanying this podcast episode, I've included the funding statement from the study, which discloses that the study has been funded by the Agency for Management of University Research Grants of the Government of Catalonia, the Institute of Health Carlos III, and has been co-financed with the European Union ERDF funds. They then go on to state, quote, the sources of funding are public agencies responsible for the management of funds allocated through government budgets to competitive calls and does not participate in the design of research, end quote. Now, I would have thought it painfully obvious that people who didn't believe that an entire population needed to be subjected to an experimental new medical technology in order to combat a virus which was acknowledged by the World Health Organization in late 2020 to be about as deadly as a bad flu, and who had lost trust in experts who promoted non-evidence-based interventions like lockdowns and compulsory wearing of facial decorations, they wouldn't be the first in line to take the experimental jab. And while the so-called conspiracy belief question was poorly formulated, although perhaps it made more sense in the original Spanish and Catalan, it did at least point in the direction that some inquiring minds might have looked, while seeking an explanation for the unreasonable actions of their governments and their so-called public servants. But what was the purpose of conducting this survey? Was it driven by the sheer intellectual curiosity of genuine scientists? Let's look at the study's conclusion. Quote, this study has made it possible to delineate in detail the profile of people with high doubts or rejection of vaccination. End quote. Ah, I see. So the government funded a study to profile people who weren't keen to get the jibby jab. Well, that's reassuring, isn't it? Why might they want to do that? I'm sure they have very benign motives. The authors of the study do too. And of course, these motives have absolutely nothing to do with who pays their salaries. 
Here's what they have to say about how important it is that everyone take their government-approved transfection agent. Quote, widespread population vaccination against the SARS-CoV-2 virus is a matter of great interest to public health, as it is the main pharmacological measure to contain the COVID-19 pandemic. Hesitancy or reluctance to vaccination has become a main barrier to containing the pandemic, end quote. Now, if I were being far more generous than I'm inclined to be at this point, I might cut them some slack for still clinging to the idea that the transfection agents could contribute to herd immunity when they launched their survey in June 2021. Of course, those who were actually paying attention to the clinical trials of these agents knew back in October 2020 when Peter Doshi published an editorial in the BMJ, and I've linked to that in the post accompanying this podcast episode, that these experimental injections weren't even being tested to see if they stopped viral transmission, which is, of course, the only way that they could, quote, contain the pandemic. But hey, maybe these researchers were too busy social sciencing to read the British Medical Journal back then. And all the experts were still telling the world that the transfection agents really, truly, honestly did stop viral transmission. You're okay. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Vaccines prevent getting infected, prevent getting sick, prevent your hospitalization. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, um, and, and that it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real world data. Now we know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. A vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else. Pfizer was also aggressively marketing their transfection agent as stopping viral spread. And you know how trustworthy they are. However, as I noted in last week's podcast episode, it was already widely admitted by August 2021, that is a full 18 months before this paper was published online, that the COVID transfection agents did not prevent infection with SARS-CoV-2 and did not prevent transmission. To repeat Columbia University epidemiologist Jeffrey Shaman's comment to the BMJ, quote, In some sense, vaccination is now about personal protection, protecting oneself against severe disease. Herd immunity is not relevant, as we are seeing plenty of evidence of repeat and breakthrough infections, end quote. And that is from a piece in the BMJ called COVID-19 Delta Infections Threaten Herd Immunity Vaccine Strategy. And yet, in a paper published in April 2023, the Spanish authors assert that, quote, given the characteristics of the virus and the vaccines administered, it is necessary that between 80 and 90 percent of the population be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity, end quote. Oh, is that so? Well, by the end of 2021, 80% of Spaniards were fully vaccinated, according to the then current definition. <laughs> Remember when two shots was all you needed to be fully vaxxed? While another 3.8% were partially vaccinated. And yet COVID cases were skyrocketing. I've reproduced a chart from Our World in Data that shows how the number of reported daily cases in Spain shot up at the end of December 2021, when over 80% of the population had had their jabs. 
and by the end of 2022, Spain had got pretty damn close to 90% vaccination. That is, 86% of Spaniards had completed the initial protocol and a further 1.3% were partially vaccinated. And by that stage, they had finally wrestled their new case rate down to four times as high as that of Romania, a country which managed to jab less than 30% of its population. So uh, yeah, how's that containing the pandemic thing working out for you guys over there in Spain? Now, the process of getting a study published in a scientific journal is quite lengthy. The study results need to be analysed, written up for publication, submitted to a journal, accepted for peer review, corrected as per peer reviewers' comments, and formatted for publication. But even allowing for the usual delay between submitting their paper and Vaccine X publishing it, it is beyond comprehension that the authors of the study had not become aware that the rationale for conducting their survey, namely that near-universal uptake of the experimental transfection agents would contain the COVID-19 pandemic, had collapsed. And that invites the question, what function do papers like this one truly serve? Because they sure as heck don't advance scientific understanding. The answer to that question lies not in the body of the paper, the method section, which describes how the survey was designed, administered and analysed, but in the introduction. This section of a paper is supposed to explain what the researchers were investigating, what is known and unknown about this topic, and why it matters. Here are some of the key passages from the introduction to this paper, with my commentary on them. First quote, vaccination has historically greatly reduced the effect of infectious diseases and is generally safer and more effective than curative drugs, end quote. I discussed at length the complete falsehood that vaccines were largely responsible for eradicating the scourge of infectious disease. In a previous post, COVID-19 and philanthrocapitalism's War on Public Health Part 2, Technological Solutions to Public Health Problems. I've linked that article in the post accompanying this podcast episode, and I would encourage you to read or perhaps reread that post. But here's the money quote. The McKinley's calculated that, at most, 3.5% of the total decline in deaths from influenza, pneumonia, diphtheria, whooping cough and poliomyelitis, which were the major causes of death from infectious disease between 1900 and 1977 in the US, could be ascribed to medical measures, including both treatments and vaccines introduced for those diseases, end quote. In other words, vaccines made bugger all of difference. The obvious retort to the argument that vaccines are, quote, generally safer and more effective than curative drugs, end quote, is that we only apply curative drugs to people who are actually sick, whereas vaccines are administered to people who are currently healthy, in the sense at least of not having the disease of concern. Therefore, a vaccine should be proven to be orders of magnitude safer than curative drugs, and not just in short-term safety studies, but across the entire lifespan. Such large-scale longitudinal vax versus unvax studies have never been done, despite the ease of performing them in an era of centralised databases and electronic health records. The few small-scale vax versus unvax studies that have been done indicate that unvaccinated children are healthier than their vaccinated peers. Next quote, the benefits of vaccination transcend the prevention of infection, morbidity and mortality of people because it also contributes to the reduction of the cost for the public health system and promotes the disappearance of new resistant strains, end quote. Again, vaccination has never been shown to reduce healthcare costs across the lifespan because large-scale longitudinal vaxxed versus unvaxxed studies have never been done. 
The cost of treating a child for measles, for example, less than a dollar's worth of vitamin A reduces the risk of death from measles by 87% for children under two years old, is considerably less than the cost of treating children for the chronic conditions such as allergies, asthma, gastrointestinal disorders and developmental delays that have been found by the small number of vax versus unvax studies that I mentioned before to be more common in vaccinated children. Next quote, in turn, vaccination provides social benefits such as indirect protection to people that cannot be vaccinated due to age, chronic disease, etc., while also combating the socioeconomic inequity of access to health compared to other types of pharmacological treatments, end quote. I dealt with the first false claim in this sentence at length in last week's podcast episode. Suffice it to say that a vaccine that does not prevent viral transmission does not confer indirect protection to anyone. And since one of the poorest states in India, Uttar Pradesh, managed to supply an early COVID treatment pack to millions of its citizens, a pack that contained cheap nutritional supplements like zinc and vitamin D, and off-patent drugs including ivermectin and doxycycline, I don't buy the health equity argument for taxpayer-funded vaccines that return massive profits to pharmaceutical companies. Next quote, the World Health Organization, the WHO, stated that one of the biggest risks to preventing the spread of disease is hesitation over vaccination. This phenomenon underlies a set of negative beliefs, attitudes and behaviours regarding vaccination. Previous studies indicate that resistance to vaccination is sustained despite its proven success against common and serious diseases, end quote. I discussed the WHO's hand-wringing over so-called vaccine hesitancy in a previous article, Backlash, How the Vaccine Pushes Turn True Believers into Vaccine Skeptics, Part 1. Suffice it to say that the leading proponent within WHO of this vaccine hesitancy is an existential threat to humanity shtick is an anthropologist by the name of Heidi Larson, who has no academic credentials in immunology, vaccinology, virology, evidence-based medicine or health econometrics. But, you know, what ifs? Next quote. The development and mass administration of vaccines is seen as crucial to stop the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, as well as to achieve herd immunity and curb the emergence of new variants of the virus. Given the characteristics of the virus and the vaccines administered, it is necessary that between 80 and 90% of the population be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity, end quote. I've already discussed the abject failure of the COVID transfection agents to, quote, stop the spread, end quote, and, quote, achieve herd immunity, end quote, which was blind Freddy level obvious a year and a half before this paper was published. As for the notion that, quote, mass administration of vaccines could curb the emergence of new variants of the virus, end quote, there was already compelling evidence in August of 2021 when I wrote Why Australia's COVID-19 Exit Plan Can't Succeed, Part 2, that the leaky transfection agents were actually driving the emergence of new viral variants by fixating the immune response on the spike protein of the extinct Wuhan variant of SARS-CoV-2. Next quote, the lack of precedent for an international health emergency such as the COVID-19 pandemic contributes to the fact that information strategies on the virus and the implementation of the protection and prevention measures have not followed a pre-established action plan, end quote. This is one of the most outrageous and insidious lies of the entire scamdemic. 
The fact is that every country that is a signatory to the WHO's international health regulations had a pandemic preparedness plan based on decades of experience in handling mass illness caused by respiratory viruses. Australia's was updated in August of 2019, just months before the first reported case of COVID-19. And yet, by remarkable coincidence, almost every country abruptly and inexplicably threw its evidence-based plan out the window in March 2020 and began implementing completely non-evidence-based protocols such as border closures, mass confinement and mass testing of asymptomatic people, asinine physical distancing rules and mandated wearing of facial decorations. Next quote, at a time when new variants of SARS-CoV-2 are continuously emerging, the need to achieve a global level of immunity is highlighted, and it is critical for global public health to identify resistant population groups, as well as the main barriers associated with hesitance or reluctance to vaccination, end quote. Here's where we get to the pointy end. These social scientists, who evince no comprehension of the scientific method, let alone the established facts about human immunity, vaccines, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, believe so fervently that vaccines are the saviours of humanity that they deputise themselves to become agents of global public health, whatever that is, to hunt down the resistors. Hmm, what does this remind me of? Ah, that's it, the Spanish Inquisition. Bet you weren't expecting that. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! But all jokes aside, the attitude toward vaccines expressed in the vast majority of papers published on the subject by both social scientists and those who would consider themselves to be real scientists has all the hallmarks of a religious cult. Vaccines are the savour of humanity. All must declare faith in them and receive them as a sacrament. Anyone who questions the need for them or their potency as agents of salvation is a heretic who must be identified by researcher inquisitors. And these unbelievers must either recant their heresy and demonstrate proof of conversion through acceptance of the sacrament or face punishment. Excommunication from society, financial penalties and denial of medical care were just three of the punishments deemed appropriate by the priests and acolytes of the vaccine religion in the COVID era. The refusal of the authors of papers such as this one to even contemplate evidence that contradicts their supposition is utterly antithetical to the scientific method. Richard Feynman would be rolling in his grave. Steve Patterson can chalk up another piece of evidence for his dark age hypothesis.